And I said, well, if you really want to be successful, take off your suits, put on overalls and go out for six months delivering soft drinks and learn what the business is about. Mm. And of course, that was out of the question. They weren't going to do that because, because they were above that. But that's why they were failing. Mm. See, big companies, the thing about big companies is they do, they have massive advantages in terms of they have cheap supplies of capital, they have all this knowledge, but they don't have the, the basic understanding of how things work at the ground level. And they're so distant from it. Welcome back to another episode of Jim's Cast. And today we've got a highly prepared show, so big thanks to Jake, the producer, who gave us some notes. And this topic's going to be uh, basically, will working harder lead to a better life? So just some facts real quickly for Jim first, which is all based on the 22 Edelman Trust Barometer. Now, only 30% of Australians believe working hard will lead to a better life in the future. Two out of, th- two out of three feel the change of technology is too fast, and Australia has the largest distrust of technology of various country surveys. Studies also found that the growing gap in trust between the elites and the public, which could be a reflection of income inequality. Most employees globally fear job loss due to automation, a looming recession, cheaper foreign competition, and the gig economy. And across all types of employment, 31% of Australian workers were working part-time under 35 hours per week in February 2018, up from 25% in 1998. So just a few facts and statistics there for you, Jim. And we'll lead into the sort of first question here. Now, why is there a growing distrust in people's ability to better themselves in the system? In my experience, working hard does lead to a better life. I mean, we've got nearly 4,000 franchisees out there, and we're looking at them all the time, how they're doing. The overwhelming finding is that people who work hard and care about what they do and give customers to do better. And you can, you can measure that in all kinds of ways, like the fact that people who give better customer service, for example, actually tend to be far less likely to report poor income mm. and less likely to leave. So in the area of small business, which I know best, it, it's overwhelmingly true that effort means everything. And, and, and look, there's, for most of our franchisees, there's overwhelmingly there's more work than they can handle. So why do some fail? It's not, it's not because of luck. It's very, very rarely anything to do with anything but themselves. Mm. Obviously, having a good franchise all helps. And also within my company, I mean, as an employer, I, I have people who I watch my staff all the time. And those that do good work and take on initiative tend to get promoted and others who don't do good work and tend to get let go. Well, I think it's an interesting stat. 30% of Australians believe, believe that working uh, hard will work. I think it's a, it's an alarming statistic. I was always taught, you know, especially from sports and stuff. You know, the more you train, the harder you train. The more you outwork anyone with talent, for example, right? So hard work always beats talent. So I was surprised about that. Look, sometimes sometimes systems don't recognise hard work. I mean, teaching is a perfect example of that. Teaching basically means if you've got a certificate that you're qualified to be a teacher. Regardless of how incompetent and lazy you are, you'll still get the same pay forever. There's virtually no, no recognition. There's no incentive yeah. for good work. So it's probably true in a lot of professions that's exactly the case. But that's, that's an issue because the system is, is set up in such a way that it, it, it discourages people from giving good, good service and good work. So I think it depends. I think to a lot of people it probably is quite correct. Mm. I think there's an awful lot of jobs where it doesn't matter how well you do, you won't get recognised. Um, but 
thing I'd always say is the one answer to that is if you if your boss doesn't recognise you, well, have your own business because because right. then your boss has to recognise your good work, and <laughs> if you do good work, well, then your boss is going to reward you by giving you a pay rise. Well, that's exactly right. When you are the boss, you can do those type of things. So, what do you think about the casualisation of the workforce? Is that playing into distrust? Because that's interesting about the working part time statistic. How that's up a lot from um, nineteen ninety eight. I think it's up by around six percent. Now, 31% of Australian workers are working part-time, under 30 hours, 35 hours a week, which is quite interesting. Well, bear in mind, a lot of those want to work part-time. Mm. And, and in particular, say, um, people with young children, which is mainly women in our society, um, we know we'd have an issue this with, with franchisees. And one of the things people come to us is because they want the part-time works. So a woman will take a dog wash franchise because she knows she can drop her kids off to school, go out and wash a few dogs, pick her kids up from school, maybe do some more on Saturday morning when her husband's home. Mm. So it's actually, for many people, it's highly desirable. And there are actually some indications that people who work part-time, um, especially women, tend to be happier than those who work either full-time or not at all. Mm. Because, because if you don't work at all, you can get bored. But, you know, working, you know, 40 hours a week plus travel plus childcare and housecare and stuff can be a big strain. Um, some people will obviously like full-time work and they don't get it, but I think that's probably less of an issue. Well, I think a lot of the gym's mowing blokes will do a four-day work week quite often and do the Friday for the golf and maybe yeah. pick up the kids a couple of times a week during the, uh, during the week. And that's what you said. I think the family life aspect, right, you can allocate more time to that family life and those family events. Mm. So maybe you might not have had time to coach your kid's soccer team or footy team or whatever it is. Now you can because you do have that, that ability to do that. And a lot of our guys are happy with the income level and that balanced trade-off, whereas if they were allocating it to, let's say, a 60-hour week or 55-hour week, yes, they'd be more financially lucrative, but they'd be le- a lot less poor on the lifestyle. Well, one of the most rewarding jobs I do is actually talk to my veterans, the people who mm. anniversary like 10, 15, 20, 25 years. And uh, it's, it's interesting, actually. Um, I love to think that they basically are making far more money than their previous employment, but it's generally not what they say. What they say is the great thing about being in gyms is I see my kids. Mm. I can take and like going to soccer games and taking off the afternoon and playing golf or whatever they want to do. It's more of a lifestyle issue. Yeah, but they do make good money as well. I know. I know we say they're not. They're definitely not poor, but they do make good money. Yeah, you know, we, we have they do. Guys. They do. But the, the biggest biggest advantage they say is the fact yeah. that I don't have to travel. I see my children. My time is flexible. That is the biggest single benefit. Mm. Some of them make a lot more money. There's no question about that. <laughs> well, you find over the years, some of them get so efficient, they can do a three-day work week or a four-day yeah. work week and make just Well, I was talking to this guy in, in, in Queensland who said he knocks off at 12 o'clock every day because he doesn't like working in the heat. And he only works Monday to Thursday. Not bad. But he charges 200 bucks an hour. He's got a couple <laughs> of workers. So to him, it's a, yeah. he's not, he's not going to become a millionaire doing that. But by was what a great lifestyle. Oh, it's a ripping hourly rate. No, exactly right. Hourly rate with the lifestyle. So he's doing quite well. So I want to talk in that stat before, which I thought was quite interesting, which one was two-thirds feel the change of technology is too fast. And Australia has a massive distrust of technology in comparison to other countries, which I found quite interesting. Yes, but then again, everybody likes using Facebook and Google and so forth yeah. and stuff. I've got my son who's 10 years old and he loves science and he's looking up all these science things on, on YouTube and, and, and coming back with questions and questions about what happens if you put a, a baseball-sized chunk of the sun to the earth, what effect would it have? He just loves this kind of stuff. And mm. I mean, you could never do that in the past. There's so many positive things. Like, like the access to information and, and stuff is, is so good. And I think people do like that. Look, it's natural to be scared, particularly when it comes to the workforce, because, you know, the old idea was that you, you train for one job and you've got it for your whole life. Mm. And that's, it's just not the way the world works anymore. So many, so many professions are, 
under threat. But I think people have just got to adapt to it. It's not going to. It's not going to change. There'll be new things that be created. This is what people always forget. There's always new industries created. There'll be so. I think what 2030 will be like all these jobs which will be created, which we yeah. won't have any idea about today, right? Which people will just shift in towards. The interesting right. thing is that for those who are flexible in their thinking and don't mind changing, it's actually a good opportunity because Absolutely. because there's areas that open up. People can run all kinds of things like you know, business, or social media business from home and stuff, and professions that didn't even exist in the past, and you know, working remotely. And, and there's so many opportunities, but it's 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 very scary and unnerving. I actually think though the biggest dangers of technology is not is not the fact that it changes so much. But the fact that we're so dependent on it, and this is something I've talked about in the past, but every every day that goes by, we're more dependent on technology. Basically, all of our money system is now online, virtually mm. all, with very little cash going on. Computers, food distribution, government services, everything. And it will be extremely easy to disrupt that. In fact, as time goes by and as computer ships get smaller, it's actually more and more vulnerable yeah. to things like a EMP, which could be a solar flare, which as happened back at 1859, the Carrington event, could be a hydrogen bomb put off by some nasty terrorist or something like that high in the atmosphere. Could also be just a simple attack on our systems, the way they've done it. Like the Israelis went into Iran and they and they blitzed their whole nuclear program by... by uh, we're a lot more vulnerable than, than the Iranians were because they would have every protection imaginable. Mm. I mean, our systems are wide open. Well, cyber, to, to cyber, well, cyber ter- terrorism is a massive threat, yeah. and um, there's not enough people who actually do cyber security. You could you it's could cripple massive. you could cripple the economy in no time, and it would even be it would be quite cheap. It would be easy to do. It's just a tax on a few basic installations. We've had it all the time. People just doing this ransomware stuff, like this, yeah, these true. Russians and so forth. Yeah. It's, it's not that difficult to do, really. But even could you imagine, let's say, the Nasdaq on the New York trading floor, and they manipulate one of the graphs on the stock market, right? They yeah. can do that sort of stuff. And you know, the actual, but you'll find a lot of people now are only starting to twig up to, especially businesses. Businesses lack in cybersecurity area. The amount of times I hear businesses don't take out cybersecurity insurance or whatever, because I don't think whatever happened to them is astounding. And you have a lot of uni kids, a lot of degrees now are going towards cybersecurity. It's mm. going to be a massive lucrative industry in the future. So as you said before about one door closing, other opportunities opening, that's something like a, that's a new industry, the cyber industry, the cyber protection industry over the next 10 years definitely will really pick it's up. It's one of many. Unfortunately, the kinds of areas that are opening up are mostly with those with a lot of education. I think the issue is for people who are less educated is... is can be harder, but then again, there's there's other opportunities for them too. I think. I think there is, and I just think I think everyone thinks that, that like technology does change fast, but it also changes slow as well. You know, systems around it, policies around it change slow. For example, our parliament, let's say our parliaments cannot keep up with digital changes in technology, right? Like things like online cyberbullying. Look how long it took for them to catch up. You had all these unfortunate young people taking lives due to that sort of stuff, and then Brody's law on these things are years, years later, right? So my problem with, with people is not wanting to learn. So you have these stuck-in-their-way people who are 50 or 40 or whatever age they are, they go, no, don't, don't like social media, won't even use it, or don't, don't, don't use that, don't even want to attempt to learn it. That's, for me, is the mindset. If you have that, you will be one of those people eventually put in the scrap heap in the working world unless you have a mindset. Where you I can don't think you learn. can put a halt to it. Look, it's the same situation as happened in the late 18th century with the Luddites and so forth, mm. and there was this fear of losing jobs, which was quite real. And people were losing, for example, um, skilled um, people who were doing skilled um, clothing work in their own homes on a jobbing basis. They lost it to these vast factories, which were de-skilled entirely. I mean, it was very scary to people at the time. Uh, more frightening now because there was no there was no social safety net that they had, and yet in the end, you were better off. So 
technology on the whole tends to create employment and tends to create wealth. The thing that worries me is our dependence on it. The fact that we haven't got any good backup plans for it all going down. That is to me a far greater danger. If we lost, if we had something like an EMP, which is quite possible just to result of a solar flare, you know, within a year, 80% of the Australian population could be dead. Well, what could guard against it then? What could guard against that sort of stuff? What would you put in place? So let's say if you were the Prime Minister or whatever it was, what could you put in place as a safety guard or backup to help alleviate well, some of that? Well, there should be there should be backups to key systems uh, which are hardened. You can do that easily by putting them in things called Faraday cages. Right. So you have your basic things like your electric, your electric um, transformers. If there was if there was spares of those to, and a plan to put them in place, so you could bring things back online. So Faraday cages protects it from an EMP. If, if for example, yes. that was one of them. Yeah. That's an example. And and the other, another example is is food storage, which yeah. I often talk about. But but to actually have a situation where there was a, a year's supply of food available for every Australian citizen wouldn't really cost that much anyway when you consider the, the cost of borrowing and so forth. I mean, you'd have to store it somewhere, but something of that nature. I mean, it's an insurance policy to have a certain cost, but it'd be trivial by comparison with well, so many well, you know who's government. done that in a way? Russia. I was in Russia for hmm. the World Cup, and there's a town called Samara. It was a city, sorry. City, Samara is the backup capital of Moscow. So let's say if something happens to Moscow, it gets nuked or whatever it is, Samara is the backup. And we were driving past Stalin's bunker. So Stalin had his bunker there. We went in, it was quite interesting, but on the way, there was all these mountains on the side. And we're like, what were they? We, we, we made a joke. It was a silly joke, but we said, oh, we go to the guy, is that where you store your nukes? And he started laughing. He goes, no, 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 that's where we store all our food. And so we said, what? But food for who, though, I question. I reckon the elites <laughs> would look, be looked after very, very well. And that would include Australia, Russia, America, anywhere else. But the ordinary poor Joe in the street <laughs> is going to starve if something goes that, badly That would probably wrong. be the case, but he was saying that they would they would store, on all those, they had these massive stores there. Because if something happened to Moscow, they've held these massive stores there of food, grain, It's not it that is. difficult to store food, actually. You can just put it, if you get a something like a 20-kilo plastic bucket, you put a Mylar bag in it, you put the, the rice or the wheat or whatever it is in that bag, and you seal it with an oxygen container in mm. there. It's a relatively cheap sort of system, and you could do it on a bigger scale, it'd be even cheaper. It's it's not difficult well, to Australia, do. Australia did do this in World War II. I don't know if you know. We used to have these things. Australia, uh, there's a place called Ararat. It's called a thing called this, uh, near Ararat. Sorry, it's called the Stick Shed. It's the largest wheat storage silo in the world. Mm. And it's just a huge granary shed. You can go there and do tours and all this sort of stuff. And don't ask me why I went there, but we went on a family ex- excursion there because I love all that sort of stuff. But we after World War II, because you couldn't export any of the grain out to Europe or whatever, right? So... Mm. That was back in the day, and you have these massive things still left. Some of them are left around Australia where they could store this, this grain silage. But, so you're saying the food, you're saying the um, the EMP protection off the... Uh, yeah. Yep. What, what about cyber... <coughs> what about the cyber attacks and the manipulation of financial markets and all those systems and stuff? Would you say putting more people into those fields to protect against <coughs> that or companies need to get smarter with that or... Well, I do think we need to get more serious about security. There's a book yeah. called, uh, if you read it, um, are you, surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman? Mr. Feynman, no, I haven't read the Feynman one. Feynman, no. it's, it's, it's one of the stories he tells about yeah. how he was working, I think he was out with a nuclear research place, which right. is top secret and stuff, and he found this gaping hole in security, and he told them about what they were doing. It wasn't computerised in those yeah. days, it was based on files. And he and they took and they took very great action, but the action they took was to protect it from him, <laughs> even though what he was saying it's completely vulnerable to yeah, outsiders. Yeah. And this was nuclear secrets and things like that. So, uh, I, I think we certainly should put a lot more effort, and we should have people. I, I like the idea of people actually doing doing attempts at attacks and seeing they can get in. Yeah. So we so we do have a wall of shame. So if you do click on any of um, zip or any sort of suspicious folders, you go on the wall of shame. Then it says the amount of simulated attacks on you and 
and how many you've done, and you don't you don't want to be on there. So I think it'd be very interesting for the government to set up some sort of body. It had to be very carefully monitored yeah. um, to actually to, to try attacking different institutions and see, if, including places that do things like food distribution, Quite yeah. which is yeah. which is without uh, telling them. Without telling them, and, and then and then if you get, and if you get caught doing it, you get fined or something like that. You get and you get shamed, and 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 you know people will start to take like people do stupid things like they they leave the the security like zero zero zero. They leave the the factory reset. Mm. Or they do really dumb things, very very poor levels of security. We should tighten up all over the place because you can get in anywhere. It's like I can't let my kids play on 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 the. Um, on our office network, because we've got a branch at home, I will not let my kids use that because what they do is they download stuff. Yeah. And that, and that opens up the security. You only need one person to open it up and it gets right through the system. Well, it's, like using your, it's like using your laptop in public on public Wi-Fi. You know, they can hack in and hack all your banks and all that sort of stuff, you know, which is why you need to use VPNs and that sort of stuff. But that's something basic, right? Someone going to a coffee shop to do some work on their laptop on an unsecured network, right? Mm. They can go in there and they can take everything. Um, all that sort of stuff. But yeah, it's a massive industry and, and firms like KPMG, those big consulting firms are licking their lips because they're having massive internal IT consultants built in to do those, what you said before, those simulated attacks and come into an audit and make all these recommendations and what they need to do. But saying that, it could be too late when they do that. Um, and that's only, that's only that kind of attack. I mean, there, there are, when you've got brilliant people like the Chinese with massive, massive numbers of, of smart people trying to get into certain security and, and, mm. and, and spy on and do things. I mean, the potential for doing damage. Most people just want information. I think you're about spying on everyone. That's what I've sort of come to the conclusion of with the USA, the Russian, China. They're all spying with Australia. We're all, everyone spies on everyone. I know. Everyone knows what's going on. I was something very funny back in the days of the Soviet Union. The Americans were claiming, you know, self-righteously about how the (laughs) the Russians were bugging them. And what the Russians did was they actually extracted all the spy stuff the Americans had put in and laid it out on the table and showed everybody what they were doing. Of course they were spying on you. You were spying on them. You were spying on you. They're all pointing their fingers at each other saying this and that, but they're all doing it to everyone else. The Elliot Snowden stuff's quite interesting. I don't know if you heard him, the uh, guy. I I don't know where he's at the moment, but there's... The informant from CIA, the WikiLeaks and all that sort of stuff, yeah. was quite interesting. So let's say, for example, what would be some advice for people? If you were starting out today, how would you overcome the challenges that young people face? Do you think it's – you used the 1800s example as a good one. Are we sort mm-hmm. of in an equivalent sort of time with that now, you reckon, or it's not as bad? Well, I mean, one of the, one of the problems people have today, it's not so much the economy, it's the it's the – snobbery it's the attitudes about work people want to be in white collar jobs with with you know computer monitors and technology and stuff like that the very fact of the matter is we had 170,000 plus unserviced leads last year for mm. things like fencing and gardening and handyman services and putting up antennas and all kinds of things that anybody can do with a little bit of training so it's not that there's a lack of work it's that people people are, are fussy and it's a problem in third world countries too, like Saudi Arabia. It's a very wealthy country in, in per capita, but everybody wants a government job. They just don't want to go out and do the hard work. So they have to bring in all the um, outsiders to do it all. Mm. So there's, there's not an employment problem in Saudi Arabia, but it's not like a work. But we haven't got quite the same level of issue. But there's increasing snobbery and elitism about manual work in, in the world today. I think it's a great pity. One of the most fortunate things that ever happened to me was that I failed to become an academic which was a very prestigious white-collar kind of mm. job. But I look back upon that lifestyle, look, lifestyle I've had as a, as a lawn mowing contractor and then on. What a, what a fantastically better option that has been for life. But I didn't mind 
going out and getting dirty. I like having calloused hands. You're I quite really proud do. Of it, aren't you? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I do. You can tell my hands they're, 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 yep. they're, they're like that. To me, that's a that's a badge of honour. Whereas most people would think it was shameful these days. I think that's a an attitude that young people should get over. Well, I think it's the school's problem as well. Because I remember going just going back to my school experience. I'm not too old, but thinking I've never I was never taught once that said that running a business was an option or mm. doing this was an option. It was always. VCE, 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 concentrate your enter school and that's really it. And that was it. You're never ever given any other guidance, let's say even to apprenticeships, for example, back then. Mm. And if you were done, if you were seen as to do an apprenticeship, you were, you were considered dumb. That's what they that's what they considered you, and that's the way that's what way you were sold, right? And this is in a regional area, so I can't imagine what a city would be like. Look, right? I never even thought of the idea of running my own business until I was in my late twenties, when I was beginning to recognise my academic career might not get anywhere. Honestly. <laughs> I never never considered that, you know, you're gonna be a doctor, you're gonna be a vet, you're gonna be a Whatever. Yeah. But but business? Come on. And mm. especially going out there and mowing lawns. Who would have dreamed of that? My mm. father was absolutely horrified when it happened in the beginning, but it's just not people's mentality. But the opportunities are there. They are so there. They are so open. The world has never been more open to people who've got hard work and enterprise. It's just not seen that way because people have this narrow view. You've got to get you know, your good VCE results and yeah. go to university and then go work for some, some huge company, and, that, and that's your life. Well, why? Mm. That's a very, very good point. So now I want to just talk about this last point here with this one, which with small business making up nearly 50% of employment, do you expect this figure to grow in the coming years or get suppressed by big business? So that's not a bad interest in, would you have these big companies just buying up those smaller ones that seem to raise their head to do anything? Or do you think these small businesses are going to rise above 50% in terms of... But I'd like to see them try and do what we do. I mean, get out there <laughs> yeah. looking after people, window, washing people's windows and so forth. Big companies are, are, are notoriously pathetic at that sort of thing. Mm. They, they, they really are. Um, we had um, many years ago Yates Garden Care. Yep. You know Yates? Yep. Um, big, big garden experts. They thought, hey, we know all about gardening. We can, we can, we can whip this gym's crowd because, mm. I mean, after all, who are they? Just, you know, nothing. They're lawn mowing contractors and stuff. So they started up this franchise in competition with us. And they, they tanked so badly that it actually dragged the price of their, of their shares down. Really? I never knew this. So Yates actually started a franchise to yeah. compete with you. Compete with us. Wow. Okay. And they were pathetic. They they had no <laughs> idea what they were doing. They yeah. they they were had a big company mentality. I look at there's other cases too. There's one I give in, in, in one of my books. In um I had it was that Cabri Cabri Sweps. Yeah. They were coming to me, they were looking for advice on how to do a successful soft drink delivery business. Right. And there was a company in Melbourne which had no capital behind it. I mean, Cadbury Scripps is, is a huge multi-billion dollar mm. international company. This little company, Melbourne company, was making money hand over fist doing it. And they wanted to know how to do it. And I actually asked these guys. They came in. They were dressed in all these suits and stuff, and, you know, the ties and everything else, and came into my office, which was a lot more informal than yeah. that. And they said, what do I, and I said, what's your experience of delivering soft drink? They said, oh, I don't mean that kind of stuff. You know, we're the executives. And I said, well, if you really want to be successful, take off your suits, put on overalls, and go out for six months delivering soft drinks and learn what the business is about. Mm. And, of course, that was out of the question. They weren't going to do that because, because they were above that. But that's why they were failing. Mm. See, big companies, the thing about big companies is they do they have massive advantages in terms of they have cheap supplies of capital, have all this knowledge, but they don't have the, the basic understanding of how things work at the ground level and they're so distant from it and they've got these, these elites and these hierarchies and, and practices and stuff and that's why there's this constant flow of innovation. It's why companies like Google and, and, and Facebook and Microsoft come up from nothing and take over. 
Mm. There's actually companies that were big, like um, in the top 500 and so forth, you know, 50 years ago. Virtually none of them are there now. Let's say Kodak, for example. Kodak's a good yeah. one. Remember Kodak, the old cameras and film yeah, and all that sort of stuff? That's right. And, and look, in Australian terms, look at, look at a company like Fairfax. I mean, Fairfax is worth some fraction of what it was worth in the past. And companies like realestate.com.au and Seek and all the rest of it have come up from nothing and they've taken it over. Um, it's so much. In church, they were talking about um, Blockbuster, mm. which was a mammoth film. And they had this opportunity to buy, buy Netflix. This, to buy Netflix. Yes. Yeah. And they said, oh, no, $50 million for this little startup, not worth it. Mm. Netflix is worth <laughs> Is, 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 is a multi-billion dollar company. Now, do you think that is due to the, the lack of foresight from the leaders in the business in terms of their age or just not, well, it's, just it's, not forward it's, thinking? It's or difficult what? too because if you're going to grow a new business, you have to cannibalise your existing business. That's why, that's why um, Blockbuster didn't, didn't want to buy um, Netflix because they're in competition because Netflix fundamentally is, is trying to drive Blockbuster out of business. Mm. And the same thing with, the, with Fairfax. The online stuff is actually in direct competition with the rivers of gold coming out of their classifieds. Mm. That that was the so it's it's partly the nature of those businesses. They 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 look to their existing cash flow and existing clients, and they don't want to do things that could impact on those. But I almost say view it as another way. I view it as they're trying to solve another problem for a customer. Like all good products start with a question or a problem. What problem are you trying to solve? I know so they were trying to solve a different problem to what they were currently providing. But a that's how for. that's how we should think about it. That's how they should think about it. But that's not how they do think mm. about it. They're very invested in their current businesses, and these businesses tend to be run by accountants, um, not by not by people who care about the product, but they care. They look at the bottom line, and and the bigger a business gets, the more accountant driven it is. Look, accountants are great are great servants, but they're terrible masters. Because they'll just say, we can cut the cost, we can cut the yeah. cost. But they don't see that this particular investment here. Typical example is call centers. Okay, People are very good at economizing on call centers and saying, okay, we can allow so much of a wait time and we'll put it off in the Philippines and so forth. They, they, it's easy to see the cost savings. But what's really difficult to see is the customer who gets frustrated because they can't get through when they need to. And when they do, the person can't speak English. And, and they, they economise in the wrong places and they don't, they don't have the vision for what's needed. I, so, had great, I had a great example of this the other day. Sorry to interrupt you, but I had um, TPG. I'm getting NBN at my home because it just become enabled 31st of January, finally after years of waiting, but it's there. So I caught up, went to TPG because that's our existing provider. And TPG has got a Philippines-based call centre. Nothing wrong with that. But the amount of channels you had to go through and the communication barrier and stuff, even though I can speak perfect English, just trying to get the result that you want. So actually, I went to another one, which is Aussie Broadband. Aussie Broadband's based in Morwell, and it's all Australian-based. Had, had an Australian customer service representative, and the, even though their modem, even though they're a little bit more expensive, I'm like, no, I'm going to happy to go with them. They solve what I wanted first go. Online was a lot, a lot better reviews, all this sort of stuff. So just, pay, and I think long. That's why with your call center here as well. Maybe you want to tell people about. We do have a video on online about it. Mm-hmm. Do you want to actually tell people how you've applied that into your own business with the call center? Well, that, that's the point. We, we have our call centre answered, all our calls answered in Australia. Um, nothing, nothing goes overseas. Um, but also we have on average an eight-second wait. So our call centre is grossly overmanned. So you could cut the cost of our call centre down by at least a half, probably more like two-thirds mm. by running it in a different way. But customers would lose out. Also intensive training. We have people who are here. And people stay here for a long time. We have people there for 10, 15 years. We we'll actually have a plaque on the wall. Where all the ten year plus employees get like their name, yeah. there's a lot of them on there. 
Yeah, that's right. And they're, and they're wonderful people. And actually, we tend to take the cream periodically come to national office too. So they're our best recruiting source. Yeah, you know, they are too. We yeah. even pay them a recruitment fee because they're so good. So it's, a, it's an expensive way to do it. But we just, we've never, ever, ever considered the possibility of going overseas with that. It just wouldn't happen. Yeah. Even getting the New Zealanders to accept calls taken in Australia was a bit of a struggle because to them, we speak a foreign language. <laughs> then they pronounce properly. They that's... say Jims and we say Jims. And... <laughs> But all the That's same, true. we managed to get that one across because the call centre is brilliant. But certainly time of waiting is a huge factor when you ring. And, and we, we won't compromise on that. Mm. We won't compromise on service in any way. But that can read between the lines as well. When something doesn't fit into a box, right? Because well, if a lot of these call centres overseas, for example, they have to fit into a box. If you don't fit into their box with your question or the way you're asking the question, it's just, it's just never going to get anywhere, right? So the ladies in there, they all, well, we have 588 service codes currently, right? So you might say, oh, I sort of need this thing done, and they've got to then decide what you sort of mean, then apply it, then allocate it to the right franchisee. So they have years of experience in doing that. So it's a very tough job in that regard. Yeah. They're very high level. Call centres are so crucial to be a man properly. I mean, I actually used to like reading the uh, the Atlantic Monthly, which is an American yep. magazine, and it, it's great. And then they put a paywall up, and I tried to actually <laughs> subscribe to it, but I cannot reach anybody. I can't. I have a problem with doing it. They just will not respond. Now, I know it's only 50 bucks a month, but sorry, 50 bucks a year, but the fact of the matter is I love to be reading it, but I can't reach them. They just don't have any system for actually helping me sort out my problems. I did get a response once. I wrote back to them to say what it was. That's it. Never heard another thing. Well, I think it'd be interesting because there's a comment here which is about most people fear losing jobs to automation. I sort of think it will go like a curve. It will sort of might go to that peak sort of place where everything's getting automated. Then customers get sick of not being able to call or not being able to get, let's say, old-fashioned service for particular things. And then companies will add that as an extra service or you can pay more for the premium package or whatever to go back to those things which they had previously. I think I think there'll always be jobs. There'll always be jobs for humans. I can't imagine any situation where you wouldn't have humans in high demand and the wealthier you are, the more. Not that we're particularly getting wealthier right now, mm. but yeah. I, I think there's, there's opportunities. I, I really do. I think if people are prepared to be entrepreneurial, and again, I see this because as a franchisor, I see the opportunities for my franchisees so strongly. The, the biggest challenge we've got overwhelmingly is we, we can't find enough franchisees. And, and we're asking a person to do something which basically takes a few days at the most a few weeks of training. Mm. And, 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 you know, fencing example, you can teach your person to be an expert fencer in eight weeks. It's a great job. It's healthy. It's outdoors. It's very good money. There's oodles of work. Have great money, good, a lot of work. There's 60% on service at the and, moment. And so. 60% on service. And, you, and, and yet, yet people just won't look at the opportunities that are out there. And I you think. can make more than 200 grand a year easily in fencing, mm-hmm. right? Whereas if you had to go get some an office do. job at 200k a year or something, that's, 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 you know, that's just don't hold us to cancel that. But that's if you work hard and obviously you can do that. But if you had to get that in like an office environment, you'd have to be a high level, let's say COO or CEO to get that sort of thing. That could take you tens of years or 20 years, 30 years to get that position. A lot of opportunity there. So a study based in 2020 of the Edelman Trust Barometer, um, it was basically said that there is a study study found now that there is a growing gap in trust between the elites and the public, which could be a reflection of income equality or other factors. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I think there's a- there is a growing gap between the elites and the rest. And, and I think that... I, I, a country and, and, and the Western world in general, which is supposed to be democratic, is actually largely being taken over by these self-interested, greedy elites. Mm. There's so many policies that they follow, which is so much against the interests of ordinary people. Um, one of the one of the, the worst ones uh, is is the business of, of housing, artificially restricting the supply of housing. 
the supply of housing has nothing to do with immigration. It's got to do with how much land you release for housing. You can have places like, like Dallas, for example, where, where the average house price is like 200000 US, something like that. Or you can go to San Francisco where it's $1.2 million. Mm. And what you've got in San Francisco and places of that nature, you've got massive homeless people who can't find a job. And the people who can actually manage to live there are so destitute because they're spending almost all their money to pay for their rent with no prospect of buying a house. Mm. And then the fact that young people today can't even afford a house. You know, back in the 50s, you got on average, you could buy a new house for like two years' income from an average family. Two years. So people could buy a house, they could pay it off, they'd have security for themselves and their family. Housing restraints on land, and basically what that does is protect the people who've already got money. And people like myself, I admit, who own a lot of property, and we see our property going up and up and up in value, which for the elites is, is fantastic. But I don't feel good about it, the fact that that growth in wealth is the expense of people who can't afford to live at all, who pay exorbitant rents. Mm. And there's so many other examples too. The, the creep of credentialism, the way that, that you have to have a, a, a protection for certain industries. The taxi industry is one of the worst wrought. Now, it's been taken down now, people like um, Uber, of course, but it took a multi-billion dollar company to do it. Why on earth should ordinary people who want to drive taxis have to pay most of their income to somebody who owns a taxi it was license. Crazy. The license was crazy. I it remember was, that. And then what's that? What, the, what does the public get? Well, they actually get worse service yeah. at a higher price. So here's a system that makes the taxi drivers worse off. It makes the public worse off, but, but, but protects and rewards a few individuals. Pharmacies, another example too, they have this system where you can't open a pharmacy within a certain radius distance of another pharmacy. I mean, that's just a dreadful rip-off. The idea is, well, we'll give better service because there's less of us. Yeah, you've got to be joking mm. because that's a classic thing. If you restrict competition, you get worse service and higher prices. Why do we do it? Because the losers, well, they're only the ordinary, sorry, plebs of the population, the 99% <laughs> who have, to buy, have yep. to buy medicines and want to get <laughs> services and so forth. The winners are these relatively well-off pharmacy owners. Yeah. And, and in terms of, of professions, for example, our whole medical system is designed to steer everything towards doctors. Now, doctors have a great purpose, but so much of what goes in medicine could be much better done by somebody like a counsellors and nutritionists and, and people who give advice about exercise and so forth, because most illnesses are actually to do with chronic problems mm. and so forth. But you can't get any money from the government. All you can get money from, you can go to a doctor and sit down, get dispensed with pills, walk out. The pills are probably antibiotics you don't need, which will increase resistance, which won't help you. It doesn't matter. But because you insi we insist on giving money to the, only to the, the elite and not to the people who could actually do the most good because they're less credentialed, like as I said, people who can give advice on, on counselling or on, on a diet or those kind of things, we actually have worse health. And, and bigger costs to ordinary people. And you also take down the, the ladder of opportunities. And more and more professions are becoming like this. The government is putting more and more restrictions on how you can become. Like working in a childcare centre, mm -hmm. another classic example. You know, if you've got a choice between to look after your kids of a woman who's sort of, let's say who's brought up three wonderful kids and maybe 45 years old, but not qualified, just, just been a mother. And then some 22-year-old who's never, never changed a nappy in her life, but has got some degree... Now, as a parent, I know who I'd rather have look after my kids. Mm. But if I was running a course, a, a, a childcare centre, and I were to employ the mother rather than the kid, I could beat you the law. Mm. Why? Because credentials are more important than people. And 
there are there are hundreds of examples of the same things all across the road. Um, I've talked about greenhouse, the the green problem too. You've got a, you've got a system. We've got a problem with greenhouse gas emissions. I, I firmly believe it is. You could have a policy which would be actually really effective, and equalize wealth, which is to have a very tough greenhouse, uh, sort of carbon tax, and distribute the the proceeds to the population as a whole, particularly those who were um, worse off. So that's that's solving the problem and making society more equal, because obviously the people who spend the most don't get the money back. Those who go on overseas holidays and you know business class and stuff, they pay, they pay a fortune. Mm. The ordinary people who are struggling, they get an actual rebate because it's more than the cost. Now, what we do instead, of course, is we subsidise solar panels which is by nature done by people who got wealth. So ordinary people actually have to pay. Now, think about that thing. It's a lot less effective way of controlling um, greenhouse gases. Any economist would tell you that a carbon tax is far better than subsidising solar panels. So you have a system which is less effective by far, more expensive, but from the point of view of the elites, it has the advantage of shifting the wealth from the poor to the wealthy. What kind of society are we? And there's a lot of feelings about this around in the world today. You look at what's happened in the US. You've got someone like Donald Trump who appeals to what the liberals tend to call the, the, the deplorables, the bitter people hanging to gods and guns. Which is ironic because he actually is one of those elites. You're exactly right. And that's the point. You've yeah. got a billionaire, multi-billionaire businessman is the one who only can represent those groups. The same thing in, in the UK where you've got Boris Johnson. Mm. Now, Boris Johnson appealed to that group too, but he's an Eton toff. He's a part of the establishment <laughs> himself as much as anybody yeah. can be. That's true. So the only people that can, can represent the interest to any extent. And, of course, what Trump does is very marginally relevant to the interests of ordinary people anyway. Mm. But I, I just think it's appalling. I think government policy is, is driven by elites for elites. And I think there's, there's an utter contempt for the interests of ordinary people. And that does make society more unequal. Yeah, I think it is. And then the annoying thing for me is when, when you have these, let's say the housing market, right? The housing one's just a facts one. And you have all these baby boomers going, well, I built this country. I worked hard, blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, but you look at the numbers with them. It's just like, for example, like not being able to use your super, right? Like I've got, I would have enough super now to go and that's a substantial deposit. But I can't touch it, right? So what's more, I think, just sitting there until I'm 67, by the time I get to retirement age, it's probably up to 75 or whatever before you can touch it, right? Or use that to get into the market, you know? And it's just one of those things. And now I've got some guy who's 60 years old making that decision for me who doesn't affect him because he's a multimillionaire. And that's that's the frustrating thing. Yeah, I know. I People get... being out of touch in those positions, which is frustrating because Parliament is not representative of Australia. It never will be, and it never I am, has been. I am a multimillionaire who finds the whole system to be an incredibly yeah. great tax incentive and, and rip-off, quite frankly. I think, it's, I think it's ludicrous the way that it's done. Well, I think just the whole system itself, Harris representatives aren't representatives of Australians. Mm. Those people are in there. They're career politicians. They do it for their ego. They've made their money. They want a hobby to do it, in my opinion, a lot of the time. They, they do it because they think it's going to get them elected. The trouble is the, the elites, the people with the money and the people who are very loud in the media are the ones that, that, that um, just set, set public debate. They control the country to a very large extent. The, the interests of the pe- of people as a whole just are not, in- are not represented. Well, they tried it with the taxis. So when the taxis hold... Because, I mean, my uncle had a taxi licence, right? So he's in Warnable. I'm not going to say his name. But he had a taxi licence. I think it cost him 200 grand or something, 250 grand back in the day. And this is in a regional area. 
It was a license to print money, though, eventually. Yeah. And, he, and he had it for years. But you hear all these guys, they get their lobby groups and you have all these spokespersons coming out of the blue and saying this is a disgrace, you know, our investment, we paid this to the government, should be protected, all this sort of stuff. And I'm, I loved it when, when uh, Uber, Ola, all this sort of stuff come in because I've, like many Australians, have been not the fan of the taxi service. I think they were the highly unregulated, they delivered subpar customer service Absolutely. and they made their own bed. And they have to lie in it. And they and what they did is rather than adjusting with it and saying, oh, we might need to make an app and we need to lift our standards, blah, blah, blah. They, what do they do? They bitch and moan and they try to lobby the government and try and do a big sob story online for everyone. It's going to hurt families, mm. this and that. It hasn't hurt anything. The, tr- the trouble is when you have a any kind of change of policy that benefits 99.9% of the population and affects 0.1% of the population, the 0.1% is going to make so much stink and fuss mm. that they very often get their way. And they get the platform to do it as well, which is the frustrating thing by, by the media. Obviously, social channels, you can promote whatever you want on that, but they get the platform, which I don't think... Who's making that decision to allow them to have the platform? Some producer, let's say it's Seven or wherever it is, or someone's giving them the order to make it, which is a frustrating thing because it's a very powerful position. Mm. They can definitely push the narrative out there. Oh, so we'll leave that one there, Jim. So thanks for that. If you've got any questions for Jim, you can leave them for him via the Jim's.net website under Ask Jim. There's a question box there. If you have any topics you would like Jim to talk about, please let us know. We also do Ask Jim every Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. And to learn more about Jim, head to Jim's.net. There's a Meet Jim section there to find out all about him, his research, and his story.